Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 270 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. The trip to the Heathermoors has finally happened, and not without some struggles. Having had a chance to recover for a few days, and with the chance to look back at the whole operation, it does now seem quite comical. At the time, it was anything but. Listen in for all the thrills and spills of this major event in my beekeeping calendar. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, welcome back to my weekly roundup of our 2023 beekeeping season, and what a week it's been. I have to say, I'm glad to be here in one piece. We did have a moment of anxiety during our trip to the Heathermoors, which I'll cover off in all the gory details in a short while. First off, though, some important beekeeping jobs for the week ahead, if you haven't already started doing some of these already. Oh, first off, the weather. It's been warming up, finally. Some slightly too hot for a bee suit kind of days. You know the ones. The sun comes out and once the bee suit hood goes up and you zip yourself in, it immediately feels a little too warm and sweaty. These sort of days have been missing for most of the summer for us, to be honest. I think I've been soaked more times by the rain than by sweating. Uh, Apologies if you're munching a late breakfast or lunch. It's not a pretty thought, really. Anyway, some warmer weather finally, but it's all a little late for me here in Norfolk. Most of the summer flowering plants are now well past the point of giving up any meaningful nectar. The borage has been cut in all but one location, and although it will throw up a few more flower buds that will yield a little nectar, we don't have anything along the lines of frame-filling honey type of nectar flows. So the weather forecast for the next couple of weeks, here in Norwich at least, is for a period of warmer and drier weather. A few showers popping up, but generally drier and a lot warmer than it has been all summer. There may well be a few days of temperatures in the high 20s Celsius, maybe reaching the heady heights of 26 or even 27 degrees Celsius, way higher than the general temperatures we've been seeing in the last couple of months. As I mentioned, it's been a busy week for us. I'll come on to the Heather Moore's road trip story in a minute or two. First, the jobs that need your immediate attention if you haven't already started doing these. First up, get your honey off. If you haven't already and you do want to have some honey to keep for yourself, the summer crop for most is probably past the point of maximum return now, and as brood nests shrink as they do at this time of the year, colonies will begin moving stores back into the brood nest area, potentially taking it from the supers above. If you're going to treat your bees to help with varroa control, especially with any of the thymol-based products, you need to check the treatment period, and a lot of them are for six or more weeks. That's going to take you into September, and remember, you'll probably want to give them a feed after this point too. 
If you're on national hives, you're probably thinking of leaving a super on them to aid with winter stores. So this will need to go back on after the treatment period is finished and then feed with a heavy syrup so they can fill it as quickly as possible. My preference was always to move this super beneath the brood box, so that's another task to line up once feeding is finished. Another current task, again, if you haven't already done so, is to reduce the entrance of your hives to help your colonies protect themselves against wasp predation. We've seen the sudden appearance of wasps again this year. It always seems to coincide with the end of the summer nectar flow and the point at which the supers come off the hives. I've had several beekeepers tell me that they've lost entire honey crops from individual hives because of small gaps left between clearer boards and supers or between crime boards and supers. The smallest gaps give wasps an opportunity to sneak in and rob all of that hard-earned honey. So do make sure, if you are still to remove supers, that you check for any gaps before you walk away from the hive. One beekeeper told me they'd lost two and a half supers worth of honey to wasps recently. Luckily, there were several other hives in the apiary producing honey, so he hadn't lost it all. But if that had been the only honey production colony for this beekeeper, it would have been a very costly mistake to have made. Don't be that beekeeper. Reducing down entrances is a simple enough task. As you probably know, I use Technoset hives currently, and they have entrances that can be closed off completely or have one corner pushed down to reduce the entrance by over half the width. I'd rather see bees queuing up to get into the hive than wide open entrances with wasps sneaking in at the edge, robbing out stores as bees continue to work hard and forage. The strongest of our colonies are simply not at risk to wasp attacks. The wasps know they have no real chance of successfully sneaking in and risk being attacked if they go near the entrance. So, like any thief, they move on looking for an easier target. Nukes, for instance, or weaker colonies that haven't grown as fast as they should are an ideal target for them. Another easy target is the drone-laying queen colony. Drones are just not built to fight off wasp attacks, and with a large ratio of drone-to-worker numbers in a colony, they are high on the list of wasp targets. We had just such a colony at our late borage apiary this week. In fact, I discovered a couple of drone-laying colonies and one weaker colony that was being robbed out by wasps. Interestingly, there were no honeybees robbing. This most likely down to the fact that the borage was still flowering well, and they're too busy with that still. The hive that was being robbed, actually, it was almost completely empty of any stores, just a few small areas of pollen left, but this hive was sat on a pallet next to a much stronger colony. Just a few inches away, on the same pallet stand, yet the stronger hive was completely ignored by the wasps. The reason? I had previously reduced the entrances on all of the hives to half size, and this colony, being very strong, had bees piling up at the entrance to get in. Any wasps approaching the entrance were immediately chased away, or if captured, killed. This then is how you ideally want your strong hives. Slightly reduced entrances, causing a small bottleneck so wasps can't sneak in. 
It's important to make sure that all of the hive components fit snugly together too, with no gaps. There's no point reducing the entrance, but leaving a gap between the crime board and super, the wasps will simply find that and have an easier time getting in. This crime board super gap can sometimes happen when frames are lifted out to be checked and replaced slightly off-centre. It leaves the crime board raised and a gap big enough for wasps to get in appears, so just have a quick look to make sure it's all secure. This also applies when you're putting supers back on above the crime board for the bees to clean out after extraction. If you can, do this in the late evening, when it's all a little calmer in the apiary and there are not so many bees and wasps flying around. If you do put supers back on to be cleaned down, you may find the bees haven't read the instructions for what they're supposed to do. Wet supers, those that have been extracted but have residual honey in the comb and on the frames, are generally placed back on the hive that they've come from, above the crime board. The bees are then supposed to move up into the supers, through the crime board, clean up all of the honey and take it back down into the super or brood box below the crime board. This typically isn't what I find happens. What tends to happen is the bees clean up all of the frames nicely but store the honey in the same super, usually in the centre frame or two. It's easy enough to deal with though. Move any frame with honey that's been restored into one super. You may have extracted several supers from one hive if you've had a good season. Use that super as the box that you're leaving on the bees to overwinter. Let them fill up the remaining frames with syrup, then pop it beneath the brood box for the long winter stretch. Job done. Finally, onto my traumatic trip to the heather moors. You'll no doubt remember I've been saying this is very much a learning year for me. I don't anticipate a bumper crop of heather honey. From what I gather, a heather honey crop is something of a mysterious, sometimes elusive thing to be had. So we may just as well learn all we can, give it our best shot, yet still come away with very little of a honey crop. We'll no doubt find out. The whole process is one I've really rather gone at blind. With everything we do, there always seems to be so little time to spend on getting organised. And being organised is essential if we're going to get a crop off the heather, it seems. So, bearing all of that in mind, we plan to take the bees from our borage site in Essex straight up to the moors. A five-hour road trip, which actually turned into an eight-hour road trip, you have to understand we're not able to pollinate all of the borage ourselves, so I arrange for other beekeepers to come along and help out. Being the kind of person I am, I've always ended up putting our own bees in the most awkward of places, trying to make life as easy for the other beekeepers as I can, which in turn makes everything easy for the farmer. This year, our bees were on top of a sloping field with about 600 metres of driving over the field to get to them. Okay, we had everything planned. I knew where we were going on the moors and the day came to move them. The drive down to the borage was very pleasant to start with, late evening sunshine and thoughts of an easy load up and away. As we got closer, the skies darkened and, yep, it started to drizzle. The drizzle turned to rain and by the time we were on the field, it was torrential. 
we had borrowed a 16-foot triaxle trailer from the nice people at Norfolk Trailers. We're still waiting on the 14-footer to come into stock. By the time we were beside the hives, the trailer wheels could barely be seen through the sticky clay mud, and I was sliding around in my wellies as if skating on ice. Not the best situation for lifting some fairly heavy Langstroth hives, Luckily, we'd been down the previous day and prepared all the hives with latches, so it was a simple job of closing entrances and lifting onto the trailer. One of the issues we encountered is the support crew had called in sick, so it was just myself and Steph doing all of the lifting. The plan had been to take 50 colonies to the heather. It soon became obvious that the weight of the hives and the slickness of the clay soil meant we weren't going to get anywhere near that number. By the time we'd been soaked to the skin and loaded around 25 hives, it was obvious that we couldn't take any more. The wheels on the truck were going round, but the truck and trailer weren't going anywhere. It's a little bit of an exaggeration. The truck did move, but only slowly, and there was no way we were going to get double the number of hives on board. Sometimes you just have to be sensible and change your plans. I called it a day at 32 hives and we set off across the field very, very slowly. The entrance to the field is through a narrow track. Coming off the field, it's down a slight slope. I slowed the truck down to straighten up with the trailer, but the weight on the trailer just kept pushing us down the slippery slope. Eventually, we came to a halt just short of the track, which also has a rather deep ditch to one side. You know, you really couldn't make this up. Thankfully, the truck stopped. But then, of course, you've guessed it, we were stuck. The wheels went round and round and round, but we went nowhere. To cut a very long story short, the farmer's son came out and helped tow us out. But we had to first unload over half of the hives to lighten the load. Soaked and very tired, we now had the long drive to the Heathermoors ahead of us. To say the drive north was uneventful would be a lie. Dashboard warning lights, a partially dropped tailboard on the trailer and a hive of escaped bees all tried to convince me I was never doing this again. After a very long drive, we eventually arrived on the moors. Now I've only ever seen this place on Google Maps. It seemed like a fairly straightforward track. A little windy in parts, perhaps, but otherwise fine. I had, of course, forgotten the gradient. It wasn't a simple flat track. There were some fairly steep slopes to negotiate, both up and down. One in particular sent the pulse racing. Imagine, if you will, a truck and trailer combo with about a tonne and a half of hives on the back, going up a steep, wet, dirt track, and at the top of said slope, there's a 90-degree left-hand turn. To the right of the track is a drop of about 30 to 40 feet down into a deep gully. And of course, it's at night, so it's pitch black. I managed to get the truck to the top of the slope without a problem, but turned into the corner a little too tightly, causing the trailer to get stuck against a grass bank. There was no other option than to reverse it back and try to swing across the track to open up the corner. If you've ever tried to reverse a trailer before, you'll know there's a certain amount of skill required. 
something that takes practice. I've never heard Steph so frightened before. Apparently, the trailer wheels on the offside had slipped to the edge of the track and were about to go over into the gully. I applied the handbrake and started to get out of the truck, only for the trailer and truck to gently begin sliding backwards. Footbrake applied quickly. It looked as if I was stuck in the driver's seat and not able to get out to check things. After several stressful manoeuvres, I somehow managed to get the trailer far enough across so that I could negotiate the grassy corner and get to the top of the slope. I don't think I've ever been so scared of a driving situation in my life before. It wasn't very pleasant at all. Once we'd negotiated that turn, the rest of the track drive was easy, onto the moor where the gamekeeper had kindly placed some white stakes and we could simply offload the hives. Being so very tired now meant the hives had to just come off the trailer and go straight onto the ground where they were. I did later notice that one or two of the hives were not very level, but exhaustion had taken over and all I really wanted was my sleeping bag. Two hours of sleep later and we were heading back to Norfolk. I can't say that I enjoyed the experience and there's no guarantee we'll get a crop of honey at the end of it, but it has taught me some valuable lessons for next year, if indeed there's going to be a next year. Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget to check out my website, www.norfolk-honey.co.uk. And for my latest videos and podcasts with more updates, tips and techniques, it's the same Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. And remember, I'm Stuart Spinks, and it was beekeeping short and sweet. Bye.